Great to be here together on this third Sunday of Advent. If you are newer with us, you will get to know some distinctive ways that we do things here at North Sub. One of which is, you may have noticed, we pray each week for residents of one of the towns in our area. So today it was Highland Park and Highwood. Just so you know, we do that because we are a church made up of people from over a dozen suburbs, the highest concentration of which makes up less than a quarter of our congregation. And so our praying for towns on Sunday mornings is a way of reminding ourselves that even though most of us might not see each other or bump into each other during the week as we just go about our lives, what we talk about here on Sunday mornings, we are meant to take out there. Amen? So uh, we're glad you're here, you know. Uh, you may have questions during today's sermon. And so I want to invite you at the outset. This is true every week, but especially true. I'm going to intentionally stop at the end and address any questions that come up during this sermon. So if you just save that number, text 224-300-0240 with any questions you have, anything that's troubling you during this sermon, uh, anything you're wrestling with, I'll do my best to address some of those at the end of our time together today. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. So these are devout Muslim worshipers in Saudi Arabia. These are devout Hindu worshipers in India. These are devout Jewish worshipers in Israel. All over the world, you can find sincere, devoted adherents of various religions. And some of them have devoted their lives to their religions in a way that would make most of us embarrassed. Like they pray with a frequency and with a fervency that you and I can only dream of. They give sacrificially to the poor at great cost to their own standard of living. They live morally upright lives in terms of their speech, their substance use, their sexuality. But of course, they don't believe in Jesus the way Christians do. What do you think? What do you think God says to such a person when they stand before him after having breathed their last here on earth? I'd be interested to take a poll to capture our congregation's beliefs regarding the eternal fate of sincere folks like these. I imagine some here might say something like, come on, people with that level of religious sincerity, they can't be on the wrong side of the line when it's all said and done just because they got God's name wrong or worshiped a different version of him. No way. Maybe that's you. I mean, outside the doors of this church, I'm quite certain that's what many North Shore residents of all faiths or of no faith would say. All those people, certainly, if there is a right side of the line in the end, they end up on the right side, right? Uh, you can't tell me God would ultimately reject people who are so upright, so sincere. Where we live, the most prevalent worldview regarding these matters maybe can be captured by the story told in an ancient Hindu text, actually. You've heard it probably. A group of blind men describe an elephant, right? The one touching the trunk compares it, says, oh, this is a snake. 
the one feeling the ear says, no, 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 it's, it's a fan. The one touching the leg says, that's a tree trunk here. The one pushing on the side insists this is a wall. The one holding the tail says, no, it's a rope. The one feeling the tusk says the elephant is a spear. Moral of the story, as it's often told, none of the world's religions has an exclusive claim on the truth, right? Rather, each of the world's religions is represented by one of these guys maybe uh, capturing a portion of the full truth. And on a gut level, this feels to many of us like a satisfactory solution. Like that's something I can swallow without worrying about I'm being hateful or exclusive or perceived to be such, right? My friends of all faiths would probably be able to embrace some version of that if I said, hey, we all have different perspectives on the same thing. The elephant analogy is a, it's a humble accepting of our limitations, right? And wasn't Jesus all about humility? Today we look at a text that sets us up to explore. Does Jesus perceive himself to be offering just one of many perspectives? Or does he perceive himself to be offering something unique? Would you turn with me to John chapter 14 if you haven't already? We do have Bibles for you in the chairs in front of you. It's often helpful to follow along either in one of those or in a Bible app. We have a few weeks left of our semester-long sermon series entitled The One and Only Son, in which we've been working through these signs or miracles that Jesus did and these I am statements that Jesus made in John's gospel. And as John's recording these events that he writes down, he tells us, listen, I couldn't include all of what Jesus did. No way to do that. But he tells us why he includes what he includes. He says, these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so our prayer during this series has been that the passages we look at here on Sunday mornings would do just that, that they'd establish and strengthen our faith in Jesus, the one and only Son of God. So last week, Pastor Sean preached on Jesus' raising of a dead man named Lazarus in John chapter 11. Today we pick it up three chapters later. And in the interim, between chapters 11 and 14, Jesus has been growing increasingly troubled in his spirit. 11.33, deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. 12.27, now my soul is troubled, Jesus speaking. Chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit. He's facing an impending death. He knows it. And as it gets closer, he's getting more and more troubled, yet he can see that his disciples are troubled too. They're confused by what he's been telling them about how he's going to die. He's, it's unnerving to hear that he's going to be leaving them after they've left it all for him. So, where we pick up today, the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is going to minister to his disciples in their trouble, even though he himself is troubled. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus speaking. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where, you, where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. 
Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So note what we see here. Jesus comforts his disciples by explaining to them the reason for his impending departure, namely that he's going to prepare a place for them so that he can be reunited with them for all eternity in his father's house. And whenever Jesus talks about his father's house, he's talking about the temple. Uh, so it seems he has in mind here the heavenly temple after which the earthly temple was originally patterned. It's the, the meeting place between God and humanity. Jesus is going to prepare rooms for his people in God's dwelling, in other words, and then come back to bring his own there with him. But when he tells them that they know the way to where he's going, Thomas jumps in and says, hey, we're still trying to get our minds around where exactly it is that you're going. How can you say that we know the way there? And that's when Jesus makes this all-important but utterly controversial statement in verse 6. I am the way, the truth in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the interest of time, we're going to focus on that three-part I am statement in verse 6, that Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so let's just talk about each of those in order. First, Jesus the way. Jesus the way. This whole way, truth, life thing is often memorized in Christian circles, but Looking at it in context, as we just did, we recognize that Jesus says what he says in verse 6 specifically in response to a conversation about the way. In other words, the way is the focal point of this whole conversation. Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas disagrees. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way there? Does that mean Jesus was wrong about them knowing the way? I don't think so. Jesus is like, hey, you may not know that you know the way, but if you know me, you do know the way, and here's why. Because I didn't just come to point out the way. I am the way. And that this is maybe the statement that separates Jesus from all the other religious teachers in all of world history, right? Confucius came pointing out the way. He called it the Tao, duty and humanity. Put your family and community before yourself. That's the way, he said. Buddha came pointing out an alternative way. He called it the middle way, the eightfold noble path. Not sensual indulgence, but not asceticism either. Moderation, leading to wisdom. That's the way. Muhammad came much later, pointing out yet another way. Islam, submission to the will of the supreme being. Five pillars, prayer, belief alms, fasting, pilgrimage, that's the way, he said. Right. Not one of those men would have dared claim to be the way. They all saw themselves as instructors in the way, teachers of the way, but to them, the way was something outside of themselves, something that was more important than themselves. And they saw themselves as servants showing us the way. Jesus says, not me. There's no way to God somewhere out there that I could point you to, even if I wanted to. There's no set of instructions 
that I could give you that would allow you to climb the mountain to reach God at the top. If you want to reach God, there's only one way, and I'm him, he says. It's me. I'm the way. Now, I used to be a high school social studies teacher, and here's how our textbooks treated it, framed it. Right? Confucius had the Tao. Buddha had the middle way. Muhammad had the five pillars. Jesus, what did Jesus have? The golden rule. Right? Maybe you learned it that way too. So you say, well, isn't, isn't the golden rule how Jesus points out his distinct version of the way? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Isn't that one of Jesus' great contributions to world history? Well, of course, Jesus did say that, right? And we can name many other examples of his moral teaching. He expanded the whole Sermon on the Mount. But the question is, does Jesus understand his moral teaching to offer the way to God? hopefully by this point in our sermon series you've seen enough to answer no to that question here's just some things that we've seen so far in john's gospel jesus says who everyone who believes in me will not perish but have eternal life chapter six no one who comes to me will ever be hungry chapter eight anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness and now today no one comes to the father except through me you see how he centers himself in all of these he doesn't center some way that's outside of himself, some set of instructions. He centers himself. There's nothing resembling follow these moral teachings and you'll be on your way to God. It's always come to me, I'm the way to God. See what I'm saying? That among the great religious teachers of world history, Jesus is categorically different in his self-understanding. You might agree with them or disagree with them, but he's categorically different in the way he understands himself. All the others are saying, there's God or ultimate reality at the top of the mountain. I'm providing you the instruction manual that will help you climb to the top. Only Jesus claims to stand at the top and say, first of all, I am God, which is different than what any of them would say. And I could give you all the instructions in the world. You'd still never be able to climb up here, so I'm climbing down to you. His confused disciples, they've only ever seen prophets who come along pointing to the way, right? That's part of their confusion. That's Thomas's frustration. Jesus, you're saying we know the way, but you've got to clarify a little better what way it is that you're pointing to. And that's when Jesus is like, no, 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 you're thinking of it as though I'm going to point you to the way. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm saying I am the way. If you want to reach the top of the mountain, Thomas, you need more than a map. You need to hitch yourself to me. But in our modern day thinking, this sort of claim carries an uncomfortable implication. Namely, if Jesus makes the claim that he's the way to God, would that mean that all those others that we've named who were pointing the way were wrong? Maybe that has something to do with what Jesus says next, right? He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. The truth, right? Remember what we said when we looked at this verse in context, right? The main question being answered here is what is the way? How can we know the way? Right? And when Jesus answers, he is the way, the additional statements that he's also, the truth and the life, then, are, in context, actually fleshing out how he can make the primary claim that he's the way. Right? 
summary, the main claim is that he's the way. And to flesh out that claim, he adds that he's the truth and the life. So this one, I am the truth, is maybe especially shocking to us today, to our modern ears. Uh, if you tell me you're about to share a truth with me, sure, I'll listen, right? You tell me you're here to speak your truth, I love that for you. But tell me you're the truth. To speak of something as the truth is to imply that counterclaims are false. Right? Respectable people, we're not supposed to speak that way to each other, true? We're taught that that sort of speech can be harmful to people who think differently. Right? But Jesus isn't just saying that his teachings are the truth. That would be crazy enough. He's saying that he himself is the truth. As though the truth or falsehood of anything else that exists out there would need to be measured against him as the standard. It's hard to imagine how anyone could say something more offensive in our world. Our world in which making this sort of absolute claim is maybe the ultimate sin. But that said, and go, go with me here for a minute, it turns out on closer analysis that this most distasteful of beliefs, that there is a truth out there with a capital T, is actually a belief that we all hold. Think about it, and some of you have thought about this. Even the person here who is the most certain that there's no objective truth, as soon as you've said that, you've admitted that you're holding to an objective truth, that there is no objective truth as proven by the fact that you do think that I'm wrong when I claim to have knowledge of some objective truth. You can only call someone else's objective truth wrong, their claim wrong, because it violates your objective truth claim, even if that objective truth claim is that all objective truth claims are wrong. Right? See, we, we all make absolute truth claims that are exclusive in some way. There's no way around it. Even the elephant analogy that we looked at, right? Think about that for a moment. Even this analogy implicitly acknowledges the existence of one truth with a capital T when you think about it because in order to embrace this analogy, to say, mm, that's right, all those studying the elephant, being limited in their perspectives, only perceiving part of the whole, in order to think that that represents something true, you have to believe, don't you, that you're the one standing back from the whole thing, not blind, able to see the whole picture clearly enough to know that it's actually an elephant. And therefore, you're the one who's able to see how all the others are narrow-minded and naive compared to your objective grasp of the truth. Right? And you can believe that about yourself, but it's disingenuous to pretend like any of us don't think that some people out there are just plain wrong, right? We all think that. And if we all believe that some things are right and others are wrong, it really just comes down to the question of what constitutes truth. And here's Jesus saying, look no further, it's me. And that's why he can be the way. If he was just a truth, he could never be anything more than a way to God. 
but because he's the definition of and source of and measuring stick of all truth, all others claiming to show a way to God must be measured against the truth that's embodied in Jesus. And when you look into any of them closely enough, their truth claims don't check out. So if Jesus is the way, such that there are no other ways that actually lead to God, and if Jesus is the truth, such that all alternatives are shown to be false, what does that mean for those who have sincerely devoted themselves to following some other way? We might address that question through the lens of Jesus' final claim here that he's the life. That he's the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This isn't the first time Jesus has made this claim. You remember just last week, Pastor Sean showed us how Jesus said at Lazarus' grave, I am the resurrection and the life. And it seems like when Jesus claims to be the life, he means it in at least two ways, both duration of life and in quality of life. Duration, because he claims that if one wants to live again after this life, life after death can only be accessed through him. But it's also quality, because Jesus isn't only holding out hope of a second life after this one. When he offers eternal life, he always seems to be offering the eternal sort of life that starts and is accessible here and now. In chapter 10, he called it life to the full or life abundant. This is the kind of life that until we've lived this life, we haven't really been living. And so here in chapter 14, when Jesus is asked about the way, and he responds, well, I am the way. I'm not only the embodiment of the way, though. I'm also the truth and the life. He's saying both. You can't access the most abundant sort of earthly life unless you come to me. And you can't access another life after this one unless you live through me. Both and. And he leaves no ambiguity about the latter portion of that claim as he follows up here. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we wanted to propose that Jesus is maybe one of several ways to access God, Jesus shuts the door on that possibility here. He only leaves open the possibilities A, that he's wrong and therefore doesn't provide a way to God at all, or B, that he's right and he's the only way to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that brings us back, doesn't it, to the folks that we started this sermon with, many of whom we know and love, maybe some here in this room, some watching online. These most sincere adherents to other faiths, What about them and this life that Jesus speaks of? Surely they're living good lives now, right? And surely they have some legitimate hope of life after death as well. Jesus doesn't leave that door open. According to Jesus, even the most happiest, even the happiest, even the most fulfilled non-Christians that you and I know are A, missing out on a version of life now that would be categorically fuller than the one they're experiencing presently, and B, however sincere their belief is in a higher power, they won't find access to God in the life to come 
if they don't eventually approach God through faith in Jesus. In other words, for the person who persists in ignoring or rejecting Jesus, there's no escaping an earthly life in which they're effectively walking dead, although all vital signs may be present, and followed by a final death with a capital D during which they'll be shut off from access to God altogether. Now, maybe you say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but eternity in hell for not believing that seems harsh. So let's go there for a minute. Let's entertain the possibility for a moment. What if there is another way to God besides believing that Jesus died in your place to forgive your sins? Let's imagine that belief in Jesus is one way to God, but you can also get to God other ways. Maybe by being a really sincere and morally upright adherent of some other religion who lives a private life that's devout and a public life in which you're an incredible blessing to others, right? Maybe that's another path. At first, I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself. First, when I hear that or think about that, I'm like, that feels like a good solution. Can that be true? But think about this. If it were possible for humans to climb the mountain, so to speak, and reach God by living a moral, devout, sacrificial life, that would mean the cross wasn't actually necessary for humans to be saved. If no payment for sin was needed, if a moral improvement plan would have gotten some people just as saved, That would mean Jesus didn't need to go through all that. And now think about what kind of father that would be who would subject his son to unthinkable torture and pain on that cross unnecessarily when the same thing could have been accomplished with just some good instructions sent down from heaven. What kind of God is that who bloodies his son on the cross when that's not needed? If there are alternative ways to God, now the cross becomes the most morally heinous event in history, and God is the monster who authored the gratuitous violence. No, our good God only went through with the cross because Father and Son knew that this was the only way. That it wasn't ever a matter to be solved by moral improvement. A debt needed to be paid. And if the debt we owed wasn't paid in just this manner, by just this God-man, you and I, all of us, we'd be left eternally separated from him. That's why he went through with it. church family, this is why we talk as much as we do about the importance of sharing this good news. 
This is why we challenge each other so frequently, not to just huddle up with other Christians. We've got to be out there living openly about how what Jesus did on the cross has transformed our lives. Trust me, if the Bible held out any sliver of hope for any other way for our neighbors to get to God and to experience eternal life, the pastors and elders here would be the first to stand up here on a Sunday morning and, and say, please, PSA, don't spend another ounce of energy sharing these controversial and backwards beliefs from this Bible, right? Let's not damage our reputations in the community unnecessarily, right? If there's another way besides this, right? And in fact, if there's another way besides the cross, there are better things that we all can be doing on Sunday mornings besides this, right? Sleeping in, playing in a pickleball league, some nice brunch spots we get a nice seat out on a Sunday morning right? any of those paths sounds better than taking up a cross and following Jesus right? what we do here on Sunday mornings only makes sense if Jesus is not just one of several ways to access God but rather is the only way to access God and so as such we gather on Sunday mornings to lift our eyes together week after week to a cross that is the only hope for the world, and thereby to gain access to the most unthinkable joy imaginable, namely, abundant life in the presence of God. We can only access that through the cross, through Jesus, or else we wouldn't need to gather. Now, it's understandable, it really is. If you are not a Christian, and these last 20 minutes, you have been like, wow, this is incredibly hateful and exclusive. I say it's understandable because it's been ingrained in all of us. Don't tell anyone they're wrong. And certainly don't tell anyone they're facing eternal damnation if they don't come to your perspective. That's why so many of us Christians have failed to love you well by telling you the truth. Because if we're honest, we're scared to be offensive. But at the end of the day, please hear a couple things from us. One, we're all just poor beggars trying to tell you where we found bread. Tell each other where we found bread. Right? We don't think we're better than you. Just the opposite. Right? We were lost regarding the way. We were confused regarding the truth. We were, hadn't ever tasted the abundant life, but then we found Jesus and the whole thing kind of snapped into place. And we struggle, we doubt, we wrestle with it, but there's nothing like what we found in Jesus and we just want you to find it like we have. Somebody shared it with us. But there's more. When it comes down to it, I hope you have seen it this morning that all of us are exclusive. We all draw the line somewhere. Right? Which of us wants a heaven in which Hitler is celebrated in paradise or where the serial rapist is just welcomed with open arms without consequence? Come on. None of us want to be with that kind of God who just looks the other way at that. And so you draw a line too. We all do. It's just that instead of your line being belief in Jesus versus lack of belief in Jesus, maybe your line is 
some level of moral goodness. If you're this good, you're above the line. If you're not that good, if you're below the line, you don't make it. How good is good enough? Who knows? But somewhere in there, you think that someone that good should make it to God and someone below that line shouldn't. But can't you see that that's exclusive too? There are some people who can never attain that level of moral goodness. They never will. They'll actually try. We're just just not that good. And so no matter how hard we try, some of us just never can be, never can reach that threshold. And so you've excluded some too, right off the bat. They'll never make your standard. We're all exclusive. That's why... Some Christian preachers have said that the exclusivity of Jesus is the most inclusive sort of exclusivity. Here's what that means, because literally anyone can come to God through Jesus. Regardless of age, social class, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, even how good or not good you are, all immaterial. There's only one question that matters, and it's, Have you put your faith in Jesus? And literally anyone can do that. You can today. And so our big idea today is this. When troubled, let's come to the Father by trusting in Jesus the Son. When troubled, let's come to the Father by trusting in Jesus the Son. And I say when troubled because that's the context of this passage, remember? context in which Jesus speaks these words. He speaks these words to a group of disciples who are troubled. They're confused about what's being said. They're scared about what lies ahead. They're in turmoil inside. And to people in that situation, Jesus says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you came here troubled this morning. I don't know why you're troubled. Maybe you're troubled because you haven't found a satisfactory way to live. You can't help but worry that maybe you haven't done enough good, or that in the end your good won't outweigh your bad. Or maybe because life has so many moral ambiguities, you're troubled that you're not quite sure what's right and what's wrong in certain situations. Hear Jesus this morning saying, I am the way. Or maybe you're troubled because among so many competing voices out there, you can't figure out what's true. How could so many sincere people out there be sincerely deceived? How can they be wrong? How can we ever know we found the truth? Hear Jesus this morning saying, I am the truth. Maybe you're troubled because you're nearing the end of your life and you don't know what's next. What really happens in that moment after you flatline? What's it going to be like when you go? Hear Jesus this morning saying, I am the life. We all face trouble. But whatever your trouble, let's come to the Father by trusting in Jesus the Son. If you've never taken that step to trust Jesus before, I wonder if you just consider him and consider those claims he made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Have you ever explored that? Have you ever looked into it? There's nothing more worth your time than exploring whether he is really who he said he is. And if you want to take the next step in that relationship with Jesus, please do find me after we're done. I'd love to pray with you. 
and talk to you about getting started with Jesus. But even for the person here who's been walking with Jesus for decades, we all need this reminder. When life's troubles multiply, what we need is to return time and time again. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know, I'm just so burdened for people we know and love. Who are way better people than I will ever be. But who haven't yet found the life that's only found in you. Who are still pursuing other ways, hoping that those ways will lead to you or to some kind of positive outcome. God, I just pray that you would draw folks to yourself, even this morning, even here, you'd draw somebody to yourself, that you would reveal yourself to someone watching, someone listening, someone here this morning in such a way that they see you for who you are and they access the life that's only found in you. In Jesus' name. told you to answer a couple questions. Um, here's one. Uh, why didn't your text include John 14, verse 7? If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Yeah, I didn't even really cover the first five verses that much. I just felt like it was going to take the whole time to cover verse 6, and so I would love to go on to verse 7, because that really is a significant part of this passage. Jesus is saying, if you know me, his disciples, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, Jesus as that exact representation of the Father's being, so crucial. Uh, and then one more. Uh, and Van, you can come up while I'm answering this last one. Will devout individuals of other faiths have a chance to meet God and admit faith in him before eternal life? Uh, what I think this question is asking is, is there any sort of like second chance? Like, hey, one last chance. Uh, you didn't believe during this life, but one last chance. Do you bow the knee to Jesus? And all we can say about that is that there's no indication in Scripture anywhere that such an opportunity will be granted or that anyone who was granted that opportunity would take it. Right? In other words, all we see in Scripture in depictions of the life after this one is that people whose hearts were hardened to Jesus during this life, people who ignored him during this life, uh, only grow in their hardening in the life to come. Uh, you think about uh, the story of Lazarus and the, and, the, uh, and the rich man that Jesus tells in, in particular. You've got this guy who's in eternal torment, and yet he's as stubborn as ever. He's correcting Abraham's theology he is uh, thinking selfishly about the people that he uh, oppressed during this earthly life, still wants to oppress them in the life to come. No signs at all of a change of heart. And so it seems that whatever else is true about hell and about the life to come, there's some merit to be said when people have said that the, the doors to hell are locked from the inside, not just the outside. Um, 
and that even if given a second chance, uh, there wouldn't be people who would take it. Uh, but because we don't see any hope of a second chance, a final uh, chance to get it right, or that anybody will experience that, it just increases the urgency all the more to spend our days here on earth uh, telling others about the life that we found in Jesus. Thanks, everybody.